Hi, welcome to the Daiku Podcast. I'm Gary Snow, and joining me today is Shannon Applecline, the uh, historian and author of Designers and Dragons. And there's already four issues of this, and uh, phenomenal work that uh, Shannon has put in as far as the history of role-playing games and uh, continuing to make uh, more and more issues in the future. But we'll talk about that in a little bit. But from right now, uh, Shannon, welcome. Thank you very much. Pleased to be here. Thanks for having me, Gary. And so what we're going to do today is a bit of a year in review and uh, no better person to actually talk about that than Shannon, because he's got so many uh, years to kind of compare to. So Shannon, right off the bat, what's the state of the industry? Uh, I'd say the state of the industry is a lot better than I would have expected. I mean, we're two years into a pandemic now. Uh, we've had all kinds of problems that I, I know we're going to talk about. And we're still getting people publishing things. If anything, I think we're seeing improved sales. Uh, we're getting people continuing to play online. We're getting the reemergence of conventions. It's been really good. Um, Kickstarter has been seeing uh, sky high numbers for role playing products like I've never seen before. Um, I can only imagine what the industry would have been doing if we didn't have this pandemic because it seems pretty healthy to me right now. And that's a big change from a decade ago. And you mentioned conventions. Just talk about like what's the state of conventions? How many have kind of been either going in limping or like a, a pseudo hybrid model? Well, I think the best one we can look at is Gen Con because uh, Peter Adkinson is one of the most kind of open and transparent about how things are going on. Uh, there was an in-person convention that I believe was supported by some virtual this year, and they had a turnout of 40,000, I think, about half of what they had two years ago, which I think is pretty astounding for where we are right now. Uh, we had most of our conventions go off in uh, September. We had one of the PAXs, we had Gen Con, uh, and then we had Argents, I think, start just at the end of the year. And so it all kind of got push, pushed back. It all got kind of mushed together. Uh, I'm sure that impacted people's ability to go because uh, they were all together. I know some publishers were not willing to go to all of them because they were afraid they would be uh, potential disease vectors from one place to another because they were all like within 14-day windows from one to the other to the other. But they happened. They seemed to work. There were no super spreader events. So uh, it seems that they were uh, done safe enough. So successful. Um, big change from the start of the year when we were all virtual. And I think we're going to be continuing this into 2022, though it's, of course, hard to say with Omicron out there. Do you think conventions still have the same kind of uh, place in the industry as they used to have? Or is it declining with more and more like Kickstarter and digital? Uh, I would say it's very much not declining. I mean, we are seeing uh, the numbers of Gen Con, they've been skyrocketing year by year until the last two years, of course. Uh, we see, we've seen the whole PAC series of conventions appear. Uh, there is, I think, so much more interest in uh, in-person gaming with people from all across your area, your region, uh, the country, the world than there ever was before. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with the innate growth of the industry that we've been seeing. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact there's a lot more uh, kind of mass appeal for role-playing games. And so there may be people going out there who, you know, haven't necessarily done a lot of gaming and they want to see more of it. Um, 
you say, do they have the same place in the industry? And I'm not sure that's quite the same. Um, conventions were really the only place the tribe could meet in the 70s and 80s. They were the only place you could find out about new games about uh, other than the magazines. Uh, see how other people actually played. Uh, the role-playing industry was much more fractured and you know, in separate little regional enclaves in the 70s in particular than it is now. And so the conventions were how they came together. And I don't think there's that same need for the communication because we do see it on Kickstarter and other things like you mentioned now, but they're no less, uh, they are much more popular in fact. And then I guess an offshoot of that is like just the whole printing process and across North America and even the globe, there's logistics problems and printing problems. And how has that been impacting the industry? Uh, I, I think it has the potential to horribly impact the industry. Uh, one of the biggest problems that we've seen is that shipping costs have dramatically skyrocketed. And when I say dramatically, I mean, some role-playing publishers are seeing their shipping costs up 10 times over what they were a year or two ago. And our industry does not have very very good margins. It has paper thin margins, uh, you know, profit margins. And so I don't know how publishers are absorbing, absorbing these additional costs right now. I don't know how they're going to in the future. I am fairly shocked that we have not seen a wave of companies going out of business, a wave of failed Kickstarters, but we haven't. Um, certainly it's also slowing things down. Uh, I think the worst story that I saw really underlining how stupid a lot of the logistical problems were came out of uh, Long Beach, which is one of the big ports into the US. It's where a lot of the stuff from China is coming in. So that means it's where a lot of the role-playing products are coming in because your full color books are probably being uh, printed somewhere in Asia. Um, and Long Beach had a law that said that you could not have containers stacked more than too high because it was unesthetic. Southern California. Um, and so they had come to a complete gridlock where they could not get things off of boats because everything was stacked new high, too high. And all of the uh, trucks, which were supposed to be moving the containers, they all had containers on them, empty containers mostly, but they couldn't stack them anywhere. And so everything was just uh, stopped until uh, someone went through, did kind of a fake tour to discover what he already knew, which was this was the problem, put out on Twitter, got it, uh, you know, retweeted by a lot of people. And the next day, the Long Beach City Council made a law that temporarily you could stack things higher than two. And some of the logistics uh, uh, started getting better. It, it's still going to be a big, big, big problem going into 2022 because all of the boats are in the wrong place. We, you know, had a huge influx of boats coming from Asia to here and, you know, they're all in the wrong place now. And, uh, that's much of what his, you know, put the costs up. Um, at least it's a little better, but I, I think that's the worst problem. And I could still see it driving major publishers out of business if there's not a lot of care. Thankfully, people learned after the first batch of Kickstars that uh, they had to put at least some of the shipping and handling cost off to the uh, uh, buyers, you know, no matter what they ended up being, because there was some variability in the first couple of years that did knock some publishers out of uh, business, but hopefully we won't see that. But I think that's the biggest problem that the pandemic's causing right now. And then I would assume that might lead to more people willingness to go to digital just overall. 
and their orders so that they can get items a little bit more uh, quickly in their hands and be able to be used. And one of the um, games that was produced was the uh, Monty Cook Darkest House. And that's kind of like a HTML website hybrid kind of adventure. And that's kind of the first one that I think I've seen. I mean, there's probably some smaller ones, but that's probably one from the bigger companies. Yeah, I think the Darkest House from uh, Monty Cook's company is, I would say, the first and possibly only pandemic game, you know, a game really produced to answer some of the solutions to the pandemic. It's got kind of a universal system. Uh, it's got, as you said, an HTML-ish interface where you can kind of move from room to room. It's got its books fully available as PDFs. It, I think, was really a thoughtful way to say, how could we produce a game that doesn't just run online, but was created to run online. Um, it's kind of a, a neat experiment. The reviews of it seem to have been fairly good. And, you know, I, I think we're going to probably see more of it. It's been great to see that type of creativity. You think it almost uh, is like that step towards video games that it's like, I mean, the lines are blurring between. The lines are blurring. Um, I don't know exactly how long the how much the uh, big virtual tabletop explosion that we've seen during the uh, pandemic is going to hold out to when people can get back to their you know new tabletops. I mean, I've certainly been playing a lot of virtual tabletop board games since then, less so than role playing games. Uh, and I don't know if that's going to continue. I, I think a couple of years people are going to have to make a reassessment and say, hey. Was this something that we did just because of the pandemic or was it something that's really offered a, you know, totally new way to role play that wasn't available to us before? And uh, I don't know what that answer is going to be. I don't know what everyone's personal interest is going to be. I do know that 20 years ago, you know, we'd have a member of our gaming group move across the country and, you know, we'd talk about, oh, how can we bring them in, you know, with, you know, video calls or stuff. It would never work out might that be different now? It's hard to say. It's really hard, I think, still to merge a physical tabletop with a virtual tabletop. I just bring a couple of people in. Um, I don't think I've seen that change because that, of course, hasn't been a priority in the uh, pandemic. But I, I think there's really going to be a wait and see. But uh, especially with the virtual tabletops, I think we've seen some evidence that maybe we've topped out at capacity already that uh, the number of people who want to do it is not increasing anymore. Though Roll20 was still reporting increases in size, at least in the first quarter. I don't think their later reports said if they were getting bigger or not still. And it seems that it's becoming a very crowded field. I saw that uh, Astral Tabletop, uh, Virtual Tabletop ceased um, and yeah. that they're just going to um, close things out eventually. And that was a partnership with uh, Drive-Through RPG, um, which makes me wonder how those work together now. Yeah, that... Astral, uh, basically the main uh, designer developer said he wasn't going to do any more work on it, yeah. um, which is kind of a one or two year out death knell for a online product. Uh, that was the thing that really made me think, wow, it's like we've maxed out capacity there because he said he didn't do it just because he couldn't get critical mass. And as you said, he had a partnership with drive Through RPG. He had you know, potentially all of the advertising, all of the tension that he won, and he couldn't get enough people on there. You know, they were at uh, Roll20, uh, whatever other ones. They weren't willing to come over. Um, certainly online games always have a problem with the critical mass and uh, 
whether uh, you have to have enough people to get enough people. Maybe it was just that, but I have a suspicion that people were starting to go back to the tabletops already, the physical tabletops, and that uh, I think he, his announcement was in November or something, that by this point, we may have reached peak of uh, virtual tabletops and we may not be doing more there. Hard to say. And then despite that, um, there's the Demiplane virtual tabletop who is now developing the equivalent of D&D Beyond for Paizo. And they announced that uh, I think it's going to be out uh, next year uh, for the Paizo's uh, Nexus platform. And I guess, what, what's your thoughts on that? Are they heading in the right direction or is it just to compete with uh, D&D Beyond? It's hard to say. I mean, I wonder how D&D Beyond is doing compared to you know, Roll20 or Fantasy Grounds. Roll20 and Fantasy Grounds seem to have all of the oxygen in the room. They seem to get all the attention. Uh, I'm surprised every once in a while when I look and remember, yeah, D&D Beyond, that's around. But, you know, they could easily be much, much larger just because of the D&D base. Um, Paizo doing their own. Uh, I think they're probably still the number two role-playing company. If so, that's probably a great way to lock in their audience. And they're probably the other publisher that's uh, big enough to really may have that make sense. I don't think I'd say anyone else is. Um, maybe Free League again because um, they have so many different games. But uh, I think there's always a question there. Do you want to go off into your own little, you know, uh, gated garden? Or do you want to be out there with all of the other publishers? And you see constantly in the industry these different decisions of, yes, I think I can do better in my own category, or I really need to be out with all of these other people. And so Peso, yeah, they're probably good if they can actually produce it. Uh, you know, Wizards of the Coast had years of failure in producing a virtual tabletop. Um, Peso failed with their, uh, you know, first big online game they were going to do with Goblin Works. Uh, online, you know, massive user things are really, really tough to do. And so the question is going to be, do they have a product out in a year? If so, then it was probably a good idea. Or is this going to be another multi-year fiasco, in which case it probably wasn't. And then, uh, Kind of an offshoot about that as far as uh, playing online, you have uh, Critical Role and other uh, streamers that are, are actually doing live play and they've had a big influence on the industry and just the, the hobby in general. My general opinion is that the streamers are one of the two or three major um, advances in the industry and the tens that made it so successful. I think you know, Critical Role and the many other podcast, video cast streamers, et cetera. I think they were hugely influential in making D&D 5e as successful as it is, which I think uh, Wizards realized uh, when they put out their stream of Annihilation in 2016, 17, which was their first really big recognition and really putting their force behind it all. Um, hugely, hugely successful. Um, one of the interesting bits of info that came out this year was that Crickle Roll is making $5 million a year, averaged over two recent years, um, which is pretty successful. I mean, they got a big team. They're very professional production. Um, I, I don't think they're rolling in money or anything, but the fact that they can run what's effectively a, a medium-sized role-playing company off of streaming revenues, that's terrific. I was really enthused to see how successful they're doing, given how much they have, you know, pulled up the whole industry with them. 
And then there's a D and D live. And I can't help when I watch that. It's almost like watching uh, like NFL football. (laughs) (laughs) Like it's pretty high end production. And uh, when they do those types of shows and it's amazing, like, like just like esports, like it's amazing how far these kind of niche hobbies have grown to become mainstream. Yeah. I, I really think we're in a mainstream place of role-playing right now. more so than we have been at any point in the industry's history. Uh, and D&D Live was especially interesting because this year's was broadcast on Peacock. I mean, Peacock's kind of the newest major-ish uh, streaming platform. I'm sure they were desperate for content since all the rest other than, uh, who is that, ABC, um, NBC, whoever it is. All, all of the content except their own was locked up elsewhere since there were so many other. But the fact that you know, a streaming platform for one of the major networks in the U.S. broadcast D&D Live, that speaks volumes to how much the uh, whole um, industry, the uh, role-playing has gone mass market. And uh, I saw also that uh, Warhammer Plus started, or I think it's called Warhammer Plus, uh, started their own streaming service uh, with 11 animation series in the queue. And uh, I mean, that also kind of speaks volumes to it's becoming more of a, a media company than just a role-playing game company. Yeah, well, Games Workshop has been a, one of the most professional companies, uh, one, perhaps one of the most corporate companies in the industry for a long time. Um, you know, they're right up there with Wizards of the Coast is the other company they're, uh, you know, publicly owned. Uh, they have pushed hard on their miniatures, and so they're not quite in role-playing in the same way. Um, but they're really big, and the fact that they started a streaming channel, um, not as big as many of the you know other ones we were talking about, that's pretty cool. Though, you know, they also kind of shot themselves in the foot from day one by saying, okay, we're going to do all these animated shows, and if you're doing animated shows on YouTube right now, you have to stop earning money from them or bring them over to us. And their fandom did not like that very much. And that has also always been Game Workshop's big dilemma there. They are corporate enough that they've been very successful and they are corporate enough that they have more than once uh, made fans and our other people in the industry unhappy um, through their stores, uh, their exclusives, and, and now going after their own fans for producing content. And uh, I think World of Darkness also has a series in the works. Yeah, I've heard about two uh, two possible series. One's the World of Darkness that you mentioned, which is uh, movies and TV. And, you know, the last World of Darkness TV show didn't go that well, but that was back in the 90s and kind of well, well before peak golden age of TV. Uh, the other one's D&D, where I was surprised uh, to hear them say pretty recently that the movie's going to be tied into TV shows. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, D&D movies don't have a great record either, but the animated series from the 80s still holds up decently well as a kid series. I watched some episodes recently, and they're still pretty fun. Well, I mean, now that CGI is what it is and there's more of an acceptance of the hobby in general, like the budgets are higher, the special effects are higher, and it just really helps to bring these kind of fantastic stories to life. You know, just like the Marvel superheroes. I mean, do you remember those uh, 80s Marvel superhero movies, how bad they were? Like, I mean, really bad. Yeah. 
And I remember even more the the 70s or so TV shows, which had this kind of stop uh, type of animation. Uh, not great. Um, so yeah, there's there has been a big change. As, as I said, in part, I think that's peak TV, but also you're right. I think Game of Thrones did a lot to make it possible to do great fantasy series. Uh, I mean, we have the Wheel of Time now, which I've been hearing mixed reviews on, but you know, it's certainly the type of thing that would not have been made a while ago. We've got a, what is it, Second Age show, a Lord of the Rings series coming out soon. Um, so there's a lot out there and certainly new D&D uh, TV shows, movies, whatever, have the potential to, you know, be high quality and we'll have to see, but I do have a lot more faith in TV shows now than, than I did in the 80s. And so now going on to the next step of like kind of what's hot in the industry, like what kind of companies are doing things right? What are, what are you seeing out there as far as when you compare it to the long-term of role-playing games in general or tabletop games in general, who's, who's doing good out there? Well, we always have uh, ICV2 to look at uh, to kind of give us some rough indication of at least what's going on in retailer stores. And so they have listed recently as their top ones, uh, D&D 5e, no surprise there. D&D's always been the industry leader with a few little hiccups. Um, we have Pathfinder. Uh, it's always been unclear to me how Pathfinder 2e is done, done versus 1e, but Pathfinder's definitely up there. We have Cyberpunk, Cyberpunk Red now. Uh, and that's primarily, I think, due to interest in the uh, computer game that came out uh, last year now, I guess. Um, but the uh, interesting thing about that is it actually seems to have had crossover into the role-playing industry. Um, you mentioned the Marvel movies, uh, and they're another example of kind of licensing uh, off of uh, a smaller industry. And again and again, I've heard over the Marvel movies that they get huge interest in the movies and they get very little crossover into comic shops afterward. They just don't see that same success in the series. So the fact that Cyberpunk Red came out as a video game and suddenly the role-playing game is doing a lot better, that says that we might have a lot more success in our industry licensing things out for whatever reason. Um, and possibly, you know, my favorite success story of the uh, 10s going into the 20s now uh, is the whole Swedish scene and how... We have these Swedish role-playing companies that got started in the 80s, building off of Chaosium's BRP, kind of building a whole industry off of that. Um, and they're kind of, of all of the uh, foreign uh, country, foreign from the US at least, uh, role-playing scenes, one of the ones that really I think was the most, you know, creative in producing so much of their own content. Uh, and now, primarily thanks to Free League and the Free League, they're doing magnificent on the international uh, scene. Um, I would easily place them in a top 10 role-playing companies, maybe top four. Uh, one of the recent ICV2s, uh, which listed games instead of companies, put Alien, which is one of their newest games, at number four, I think. Um, so I, I think those are all pretty hot companies. Um, we of course have had the uh, OSR continue to do very well. Um, Worlds Without Number, uh, which was the new fantasy game from uh, 
from the company that did stars without number synomony um kevin crawford's company yeah 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 i I believe they are the top fantasy role-playing uh product being sold by drive-thru rpg this last year other than dnd itself of course uh i also uh have uh, kind of fallen in love with necrotic gnome who did old school essentials which uh, they finally got some of their books back into print this year after problems due to a combination of Brexit and uh, the pandemic, which kind of kept them locked up in their England warehouses for a while. So it's been really great to see the OSR, which, you know, was a fan movement in the odd odds and, you know, became a publishing movement in the tens. And now in the twenties, it's, you know, a mainstream publishing movement. Um, the other big, uh, publishing movement from those periods, of course, was the indie movement. And frankly, I have troubles seeing the indie movement anymore, not because it's faded away, but because it's, you know, become so mainstream. Uh, You know, the biggest Kickstarter of the year uh, for uh, Avatar Legends from Magpie uh, Games, they were an indie publisher. Is that one still indie or not? I'm not sure. Yeah, and then I guess speaking of uh, Kickstarter and uh, all speaking of indies and success, like Mothership, I could not believe they achieved the success that they achieved, and uh, and Kickstarter in general just being such a good avenue for indie publishers and big companies as well. I mean, it's basically become a pre-order system. Yeah, one of the. Biggest challenges in role-playing production has always been figuring out print runs. Uh, the rule that I, of thumb I learned when I uh, worked for Chaosium back in the 90s was that you wanted to uh, publish a print run in which you sold half of your print run on the uh, pre-order. Um, you know, you got them into house, you immediately sent out half, and that meant you paid for your print run, you immediately got all of your cash back to do the next print run, and then you had you know, this uh, long tail of sales that would continue on for the rest um, to continue funding, you know, staff and and all of the rest. Um, But that's a really hard guess to make, especially if you don't have a, uh, you know, existing fan based existing line. And so uh, publishers, it's not just that they've been using it for pre-orders, but for pre-orders so that they know how much to print and they can make that accurate. And like I said, there were some real problems in the first years of Kickstarters, primarily related to international shipping that got a lot of publishers uh, in trouble. But now I think it's really turned into a huge boon. And this last year, I've, I've never seen anything like it. Uh, I've been kind of looking at the top Kickstarters since 2011. And 2011, I wrote a yearly report in which I said, you know, wow, we had a company that made $30,000 on a Kickstarter. Um, uh, that was uh, due from uh, Evil Hat. Um, and the next year I was like, wow, we have 11 or something like that that made over 100,000. This year we had 11 Kickstarters that meet my tight definition of a role-playing game, i.e. not dice, not miniatures, uh, you know, not accessories that made over a million dollars. And like I said, the first one, Avatar Legends, it made $8 million and it had 80,000 patrons, uh, backers. Um, There were 10 others that made over a million, uh, one or two of them made 2 million. 
uh, and every single one of them had at least 10,000 backers. Uh, back in the day when uh, Evil Hat did um, their Fate Core, uh, 2000, I don't know, 13, 14, 15, whenever it was, they, they were the first company, I'm pretty sure, in the role-playing to hit 10,000 backers when other people were hanging two, three, four for a successful Kickstarter. Uh, and it was, you know, only with extreme effort, you know, they offered like cheap PDFs and that to get people and get them interested. The fact that we had 11 that made 10,000 this year and all made more than a million dollars, it's outstandingly successful. And even though most of it was D&D 5B products, which again, speaks to how successful Wizards is right now, we had Avatar Legends from Magpie. Uh, we had Mothership, which you mentioned. Um, and they're an example of how to do a a Kickstarter really successful because Mothership originally came out in 2018. Um, this was, uh, you know, kind of the expansion, the professional version. But I think that's what's required for a successful Kickstarter. You have to spend years getting ready for it. Um, way back when Dungeon World was the uh, first kind of big Kickstarter in the indie industry, uh, which Mothership is the newest incarnation of that, or, you know, maybe Avatar Legends, depending on how you mention it. And they similarly spent years talking to the community, getting the community interested. Um, and, you know, people are still doing that. And they're reaching even higher levels of success for it because of, you know, the higher success of the industry, the higher visibility of Kickstarter, the higher willingness of people to, uh, you know, put money out in front. I think probably we're seeing some pandemic related people are more willing to put money into Kickstarter because they're not going out to stores. Maybe next year or the year after is not going to be quite as amazing. It's pretty amazing right now. I just actually happen to have uh, the fake core 2013. It just yeah. was just, it just happened to be handy here. So that's good. <laughs> yeah. So that was, that must mean it was kickstarted in 2012. And so that was 10,000 people back in 2012, which was such a big number. But 11 people, probably more than that, doing it now. Those, those were just the ones that made a million off of it. And, the, and then with any kind of industry or any kind of platform, uh, Kickstarter also has its uh, bumps along the way. And uh, speaking of one is like the Luke Crane incident with the perfect RPG. Yeah, the Luke Crane incident with the perfect RPG was one of those unfortunate bits of history in our industry that I hate writing about. Uh, it is in one of my uh, histories that I'm writing now, which we're going to talk about more later. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it goes back to uh, 2019, I think, when Adam Coble was one of the most successful streamers out there. I mean, not quite quick overall successful, but, but he was doing very well. And he wrote Dungeon uh, World had a very active YouTube channel, was streaming mm -hmm. games constantly. Yeah, yeah. He uh, was a in-house GM at Roll20 or something like that. Um, yeah, and so he was running a, a science fiction game, uh, actually originally uh, based upon uh, Stars Without Numbers, though it had moved on since then uh, to one of the more generic systems. Oh, the... Uh, uh, system from fantasy flight games, Genesis. Um, and uh, he uh, had a sexual assault in his game and it hadn't been okayed with the players and uh, it was all live streamed and he 
kind of didn't exactly apologize afterward, but instead talked about the uh, stresses of the uh, uh, live streaming. Um, and so he kind of got canceled, I guess you'd say from the industry as a result. Um, he'd been working with uh, uh, Luke Crane previously. Uh, Burning Wheel uh, headquarters did some of the distribution of Dungeon World when uh, the two principals kind of stepped away from it a little bit because they each had other things going on in their life. And so Luke Crane was a friend of Adam Coble, and he did this uh, perfect RPG where the idea was going to be, it was going to be a quick little Kickstarter. He was going to have 20, 30, you know, well-known people in the industry each produce their own, you know, short little RPG. It's something that would have gotten a lot of attention, made a lot of people happy. Um, except he included Adam Coble in it. He didn't tell anyone else he included Adam Coble in it. A lot of people wouldn't have wanted to work with Adam Coble. Um, and like when he listed the uh, people working on the book, it kind of looked like he was maybe trying to hide Adam Coble's name because he alphabetized them by first name in reverse, <laughs> which just one of the weirdest things. And so that was certainly one of the big kerfluffles in, in the industry for the air, though there were certainly others. And he uh, actually Luke Crane worked at uh, Luke Crane actually worked at Kickstarter at the time. I, I forget his exact title, but it was like basically community. I would say he was community head or something like that. And apparently shortly after that, due to a mutual decision, no longer was, which is kind of a real shame not having our big advocate working at Kickstarter, but it, it's what happened. So yeah, um, I, I think the real lesson there, if we kind of want to look at it beyond just the, wow, something bad happened is, you know, if you're doing Kickstarters, let people know who they're working with, you know, don't, don't have people that, I mean, especially we're aware of the people that, you know, others might not want to work with. If you're running a Kickstarter and you have someone who others might be uncomfortable with, don't, don't just, you know, not let them know. Um, I guess good for indie game designers if they're ever in those situations, if if they're in an anthology or whatnot, to kind of get the nice parameters of what's happening. So maybe a good advice for uh, things for indie designers to avoid. Yeah, and yeah, I can understand the overall question can be tricky when you get out of the indie space. At least so much role playing work is done by huge consortiums of people right now. You can't tell everyone everyone that's working, but you got to know when when something is going on that people might not be happy with otherwise you're just gonna you know kill your whole project like happened here the project was withdrawn within the day so going from uh kickstarters and kind of the indie scene and people self-funding let's go now to the big the big daddy of them all uh is wizards of the coast and uh, just talk about they have such a prominence in our industry I know lots of people say it's kind of like, as they go, we go. Um, so how are they doing? And what what's your take on Wizards of the Coast right now? I think that Wizards of the Coast is doing very well. Uh, I think they are very successful. And I think they're doing a pretty decent job to, of being a leader of the industry, which 
I would not have said was the case for their predecessor, TSR, who, you know, much more often was at odds with the industry. I mean, the big news for Wizards of the Coast last year was they got promoted at Hasbro so that now one of the three divisions at the very top level in uh, Hasbro is called Wizards and Digital, which is basically Wizards of the Coast also managing digital properties. Um, Hasbro is huge. They're huge. The, the fact that, you know, someone in our industry is considered a major element of their company is, it's amazing. Some of that's Magic the Gathering, but most of it's Magic the Gathering, let's, let's be honest. But, you know, this year they said, you know, part of the reason for the promotion was, you know, considerable success and growth in both uh, D&D and Magic, both of them. Um, it's actually been relatively rare that uh, Hasbro has explicitly discussed D&D at the top level. And this year they were saying D&D is, is very successful. Um, so that's been great to see. The other thing that I, I find interesting about Wizards is, I think by choice, it's a little hard to say, they are working hard to, you know, do right by a kind of diversity and kind of the moral arc of the industry. Um, certainly I've seen complaints, I've seen criticisms, they are, you know, very much a, a lightning rod because of their position in the industry. But, you know, they put out uh, Candlekeep Mysteries and they had a wheelchair accessible dungeon there, which, you know, was building on other uh, uh, discussion about disability and dungeons uh, and a miniature that had been done by Sarah Thompson. Um, and, uh, you know, they have been talking for... I think a year, year and a half about, you know, the problems of race and role-playing games. It's been a wider discussion than before that, you know, don't, don't think that wizard started it off. Um, it started off as, you know, tins, maybe the odd odds. Um, but, uh, you know, it's about what's called biological essentialism, where they say, you know, the biology of something isn't, you know, necessarily about how they act. And when you muddle these together, when you muddle together biology and culture, you end up with racial stereotypes. And fantasy uh, pretty much from token is kind of built upon that idea. And we're just you know, kind of starting to step away and say, yeah, culture, biology, those are different things. If we try to say this, they're the same thing, not only do we create games that aren't necessarily as you know, deep and realistic as they could be, but we also give racists in our real world uh, kind of a leg to stand on because we say, yeah, you're right. When, you, when you're saying these you know, real world racial groups are different, we're supporting that. And we obviously don't want to do that. So they've stepped up with that. They wrote about you know, diversity last year. Some of their recent supplements have started to separate culture and biology uh, for races or ancestries or bloodlines or some of the other names that are perhaps better to use because race has so many connotations in the real world. Uh, and, you know, this year they said, Hey, not, not all Drow are evil. Um, you know, saying Drow are evil, that's very much biological essentialism. It's very much saying that um, psychological, you know, mental uh, other characteristics are based on biology, which 
you know, is not appropriate. Um, and uh, R.A. Salvatore, the biggest writer of Drow ever, uh, was able to immediately support that with Starlight Enclave, his uh, new novel, his first novel in his new series, uh, which, you know, there's still bad Drow. Uh, you know, they've been corrupted by Loth over the years, but there's good Drow too. And we meet some of those in Starlight Enclave and presumably in upcoming uh, D&D supplements. And then speaking of novels, uh, the Dragonlance uh, saga who uh, by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman, I don't know if some of those same issues played out into that, but that was very prominent at one point that uh, they pulled the plug on a future update of Dragonlance only to have uh, Wizards of the Coast sued for breach of contract by uh, Margaret and uh, Tracy. And uh, what's your take on that? Yeah, the lawsuits were weird. There were two uh, major lawsuits last year against Wizards. One of them was the one you mentioned by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. Uh, they had basically, um, Wizards shut down their fiction department in 2016 or so, um, because it's gotten increasingly hard for a company, even wizard size, to sell into the fiction market. It's It's gotten very expensive to do so. Um, and so their answer to that was to start licensing books out. Um, and they've only done that twice. Uh, one was that they gave Bob Salvatore uh, licenses for Driss books. And I think Starlight Enclave was maybe the fourth of them that's been published since that. And the other was that they gave the Dragonlance creators, uh, the main Dragonlance creators, there was a whole team, uh, Weiss and Hickman, a license to publish a new trilogy. Um, and according to the lawsuit, what happened was that uh, uh, there was a good faith um, editorial right that uh, Wizards had where uh, Weiss and Hickman, you know, would send them um, books for approval and Wizards of the Coast would in good faith, you know, tell them either they were approved or tell them what needed to be done to make them approved and uh, uh, Weiss and Hickman would resolve any problems and then publish it. And at least according to the lawsuit, uh, what happened was Wizards at some point said, don't bother sending anymore. We're not going to approve it. No matter what you do, we're done. Um, the other uh, lawsuit had to do with uh, translations from um, uh, the people doing the accessories, um, Gale Force 9. Um, and it was even less clear what was going on there, but it apparently was also a, a approval related. Um, and so last year, my take was kind of what is going on here? You know, why is Wizards of the Coast suddenly, apparently, according to the lawsuits, not acting in good faith on their licensing agreements? And not sure we ever know why that was. The fact that uh, Wizards, uh, you know, three, six, nine months later was pulled up was one of the main groups at Hasbro suggests to me it might have been related in some way. Uh, but this year, uh, in an out-of-court settlement, uh, Weiss and Hickman were able to uh, get the rights that they felt like they already had to actually produce the books. Um, I vaguely recall from Wizards' original statement that they claimed that some of the issues were that maybe there were some stereotypes or something that they didn't like. Um, we've now seen the actual announcement of the book with the first of which is called Dragons of Despair and is gonna be out next Gen Con, it sounds like next August anyway. Um, 
And it apparently uh, goes back to uh, Tasselhoff's good old time travel device. And so maybe Weiss and Hickman are planning to do some rebooting of some of what they've done previously and Wizards wasn't happy with that. Um, still hard to say. I, I think we're gonna need a book to say for sure. Um, one thing that I found interesting about the book and exciting was, uh, as I said, one of the things Wizards of the Coast is doing that I find very admirable is really their push toward diversity, uh, their push toward you know making sure that there aren't prejudiced uh, things in their books. There's a major new character in the uh, new Dragonlance books, and from the cover picture, she is black, which is you know really nice to put. Uh, Foremost, you know, she's right there with Tassahoff and somewhere else on on new cover, and I think it really speaks to the continuing diversity at Wizards and the things that they're licensing. I'm excited to see the new book. Uh, I've always always had a soft place in my heart for the Dragonlance books since I read them first in the '80s. And then you uh, previously mentioned uh, um, the, another lawsuit, but the uh, what do we want to call it? Uh, fake TSR, TSR three, and uh, that drama that has been and continues to play out as far as the the lapse trademark and Ernie Gygax. Um, uh, do you even know where it's going or what <laughs> what's going to happen there? So the um, whole system with uh, we'll call it TSR three is unfathomable. It is one of the I don't know worst bits of business I've ever seen in our industry that is built upon people who don't really know how to do business that great because they're designers. And so, you know, there've been in my designers and dragons books, I call them dragons. There've been all of these dragons and I've never seen anything as poorly, I don't know if it's considered as poorly done as what's going on in TSR3. So, what they did was uh, back at the tail end of 2020, um, they filed for trademarks on a bunch of TSR trademarks. Uh, you know, the old lizard man, the old block TSR uh, letters, uh, their dragon uh, TSR, uh, their wizard TSR. They filed for trademarks on all of those. And they filed these trademarks um, with a affidavit and oath that no one else was using them. Um, and they also filed them either with the original artwork or if not with the original artwork, with artwork that is so close to the original artwork that it's clearly derivative of it. Um, and then they started trying to license these to people in the OSR. No one in the OSR seemed very interested in, you know, putting their foot on that landmine. Um, and so this year they then, came back and formed their own company. It was previously uh, the Dungeon Hobby Shop Museum. That was who uh, originally offered the license of these trademarks, which is a museum that's uh, being created in uh, uh, Wisconsin. Um, and uh, then they came back as TSR. Uh, they, um, Justin Lanasa and Ernie Gygax are, are the ones who've been really running TSR3. Uh, they linked up with Stephen Deinhardt, who had his own company called Wonderfield, uh, and had previously done a by then overdue Kickstarter for a game called uh, Giant Lands, and they formed uh, this TSR3 company. Um, and at which point they started, you know, putting out all kinds of media that 
basically suggested, we're the original TSR, come back together, which they are nothing of the sort. And, you know, if the licensing of these other trademarks that are kind of questionable wasn't enough to make people think weird and things about it, the fact that they started really acting or at least marketing themselves like they were the original TSR back didn't do any better. And by the way, when I say questionable trademarks, there's the two things. First, Wizards of the Coast has claimed that uh, they committed fraud in filing for these trademarks by saying that no one else was using them and that they knew better, um, which is going to be for the uh, trademark board to decide. And second, because they used copyrights that didn't belong to them for the artwork or else used made derivative things that probably would fall under derivative copyrights. So really questionable trademarks before they even got to the fact that they were marketing that they were the original TSR. And then Ernie Gygax did an interview and uh, he said some things that have been uh, taken as transphobic. uh, And he said some things that came across as uh, directly against the uh, diversity initiatives that Wizards was doing. And uh, it's kind of been followed up by uh, uh, Justin uh, and Stephen. Uh, Stephen, I think, was the one that made a very transphobic uh, remark on uh, Twitter. Uh, and Justin seems really not to like the diversity. And so he has continually gone on that. And they've shut, they, they've shut down their websites. They've brought back the websites. They've broken up so that Stephen has his own company back uh, and has taken giant lands back. They said they were going to publish Star Frontiers using another trademark that was in active use by Wizards of the Coast when they filed for it. Uh, Wizards of the Coast sent them a cease and desist. They let go of most of their trademarks at that point, uh, but kept, I think, the Lizardman one. Um, and then they filed a lawsuit against uh, Wizards of the Coast to try and get a uh, court to make declaratory judgment that yes, they actually owned the trademarks they had and, you know, would wizards please stop bullying them? Um, and uh, then uh, it turned out that they didn't know what they're doing and they filed it in North Carolina, I believe, where Wizards Coast actually has no presence. Hasbro has an office there apparently, but they apparently their lawyer didn't understand they were different companies, which sounds not great for a lawyer. Uh, and they started a Indiegogo to try and raise money for all of this, which I don't know how the 3,000 or 4,000 that they've raised is going to do anything against Wizards lawyers. Um, And they're claiming they're going to refile it in uh, uh, Seattle uh, in Washington. And it's it's just seemed like a train wreck to me. Um, I mean, I've omitted the fact that they basically grabbed the trademark out from under the previous company that was uh, using TSR. Uh, Jason Elliott, he put out Gygax Magazine with Ernie Gygax as it happens, uh, and also Top Secret New World Order uh, with Merle Rasmussen, the original creator. Uh, It just, I I have never seen so much potential goodwill squandered in such a short sequence of time. I mean, they could have got out there, they could have, you know, said, hey, we're doing this museum. Hey, we'd like to produce old school stuff. And instead they turned it into a culture war. And they also, you know, said a lot of things to, uh, you know, self-aggrandize themselves as if they were the original TSR. And it's just been, it's been a dumpster fire. 
Well, it's a, you know, obviously it's a bit of a shame for the legacy of uh, Gary Gygax. And uh, I think everybody would be happy if uh, this, you know, this is kind of probably over and done with in some capacity and everybody can just kind of move on with things. But uh, it seems like it's one of those things that's just not going to end. Oh, I think it's going to end. If they actually refile that lawsuit, um, some of the comments I've seen on the lawsuit from lawyers who, who looked it over um, said, you know, remarkably, they were saying, we want you to say not only that we own these trademarks, but also the copyrights, which I, I don't even know how, how that would go because they have nothing to do with any company ever who owned the copyright for those pictures. Uh, used in the trademarks. And the lawyer, one of the lawyers uh, who I read who wrote about it said, by invoking the copyrights, not just the trademarks, they've kind of gone into this other place in law uh, where wizards can come back and ask them for all of their costs for the lawsuit. Um, so if they lose the lawsuit, not only do they lose their trademark, not only do they have to have paid out for any lawyers that they have, but they also have to pay out, one would suspect, tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars for Wizards lawyers. So that actually does get refiled in Washington. And if it actually does um, uh, have, have the same stuff about copyright that the last did, they could easily be bankrupt by next year. I don't see how they have any of their TSR trademarks by, by next year in any case, because my totally non-legal opinion is I suspect they're not going to be able to keep them. I suspect that uh, they probably don't have the rights to them. But even if they did, I don't think that they have lawyers that could go up against uh, Wizards of the Coast. And unfortunately, in our country, he who has the most expensive lawyers is often the winner. Uh, and then uh, speaking of uh, other uh, kind of, I guess, business side of things, uh, uh, Paizo or Pezo, um and their unionization, how... Uh, how, how did that kind of play out in your eyes? Well, um, the role-playing industry has always been horribly underpaid. Uh, much like the video game industry, people are very excited to work in it. And uh, because they're excited to work in it, they're often you know willing to work long hours for no pay. Um, I worked in the industry for uh, uh, two years in, in the 90s and eventually had to quit because I was running out of money because I was supporting myself with my savings while working in the industry, which I suspect is not entirely uncommon. Um, I was getting a salary, just not much of one. So one would hope that that is not as much of an issue at the big publishers, Wizards of the Coast, Peso at least, they are both big enough and successful enough that they, one would think should be able to pay uh, reasonable wages. But uh, this year there was a, very long Twitter thread by Jessica Price in which uh, she felt finally able to talk about the problems that uh, she, she had experienced at Peso uh, when she was working there because the last people who she'd felt could be damaged if she talked about them had just been laid off. Um, and it, it went everywhere. Um, and it talked among other things about a company that at least in her eyes was very, very cheap. I think the thing that struck me and that struck many people the most was that they did not clean their carpets for years and years and years um, to the point where people were having, you know, like breathing difficulties and getting sick because of it, which if that's actually case, if 
if that's actually the case, that goes right up there with the whole TSR three story is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard in the industry. Um, but I would believe it too, just based on how I've seen some publishers run. Uh, also in it, and the thing that was kind of the least um, dramatic, but possibly the most important was that the people there were underpaid, especially for the fact that they were working in, you know, Seattle, Washington, a, a very expensive area. And so I am pretty sure that that's what directly led to the uh, uh, decision of Paizo employees to uh, seek a union. First in the industry, at least first in the industry for a direct role-playing company of that size, maybe there's something else in board gaming or something. I don't know of it. We'll call it the first in the industry. Um, and the other thing that I thought was very amazing and really spoke to, um, I think a lot of the labor organization uh, that was very common in the US in the 1900s and less so in more recent decades was after uh, the Peso employees uh, uh, took their vote and decided to unionize, there was a sudden work stoppage among freelancers at Peso where basically they put their freelance careers on the line and said, we're not going to hand in our products until, you know, this problem is resolved. I, you know, I, I've said the industry is on, you know, narrow margins. Uh, I've said that people aren't paid enough. You know, anyone working freelance in the industry, they're not making much money. They're doing it out of love. Um, and, you know, they don't necessarily have a huge amounts of opportunity for good paying companies because there aren't a lot of companies that are you know, really making, offering the professional rates that you could, um, that you'd need to, to, to make a living off of it. So the fact that they were willing to stop work, to not hand in manuscripts, you know, to choose to not fulfill their contracts to try and help, you know, the people who actually were employed at the company, that's, it's one of the best things I've ever seen in the industry. Um, Peso voluntarily uh, recognized the union I don't think I've heard anything about the negotiations going on. It, it's very historic. It's very unfortunate that it was let off with, you know, this litany of problems that, that were revealed as pe at Peso. But the fact that there's now some people in the industry with some power um, that won't just be taken advantage of because they're doing a job that they love, uh, I think that's very important. And I mean, just you even talking about that, and I think it's very similar to other industries like the film industry as an example of, you know, people get stars in their eyes and they have a passion for whether it's telling stories or designing role-playing games or whatever the case might be, that they are willing to sacrifice almost anything in order to get a successful career within that industry. So you see it all the time where people get taken advantage of because there's somebody always right behind them to replace them. And this is like the fact that those freelancers were, uh, you know, holding out uh, is maybe a sign of <clears throat> a bit of a change. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I, I should be clear, whole industry isn't like that. Peso may not be like that. Peso, you know, one way or another voluntarily uh, uh, decided to recognize the uh, union. They could have tried to fight it and they chose not to. 
Um, when I was fine, when, when I was working at Chiasm, I said, you know, I wasn't making much money, but they were adamant that the work week was 40 hours and not a minute more that, you know, you put down your pen, you know, got off your computer. Maybe you went and gamed in the loft with your friends at work afterward, but you didn't keep working. So, you know, I think there's certainly a lot of the industry that even though people are, have stars in your eyes, you said, don't take advantage of that to the best of their ability. And uh, a few other, I guess, companies just kind of cover off some things. Uh, we, we already talked about Free League being just on a complete roll of things as far as like success stories, and they seem to be trending really uh, high. Uh, then you mentioned uh, earlier when we talked about some of the old classics coming back. Yeah, it's it's been a trend I've seen throughout the 10s and into the 20s, and maybe I'm seeing a little bit less of it now. But, you know, Land of the Rising Sun uh, came out. So that's uh, a legal's old, uh, you know, Asian uh, role-playing game that was first out in 82 or something. Uh, Lee Gold, uh, you know, I would mark as one of the most influential women in the industry because uh, she created Alarms and Excursions, uh, Apazine that is still running today uh, and that has throughout its lifetime seen many discussions from many game designers that would go on to uh, uh, impact their games that they produced. Um, so it was great to, to see a new edition of that. Uh, uh, it's a chivalry and sorcery game. Um, and so it's from Britannia. Uh, and uh, Flying Buffalo kind of is coming back. Uh, we unfortunately lost Rick Loomis a, a few years ago. Um, but we're now seeing new tunnels and trolls uh, uh, content and we're seeing, you know, it coming from a new incarnation of Flying Buffalo. Uh, Chaosium uh, is always one of my touchstones in the industry because uh, I've been a fan from way back and it's great to see them doing very well, uh, you know, year over year. They came under new management several years ago uh, now. Uh, and uh, they've been doing spectacularly well. In fact, we were talking about drive-through RPG more than once. Um, and uh, they, they've been doing great in community content there. And it seems to be uh, community content is just like instrumental now. And like going back to the mothership piece of it, like that third-party community content that's being developed really helps build obviously the community. So that when you do sell a product, you have a hardcore fan base and uh, designers that are willing to put forward new material and keep it vibrant. Yeah, I've been entirely amazed by how professional so much of the work is on, on community content. I mean, clearly there's a spectrum, but there was a spectrum, you know, in what was being produced by small press, press, whatever you called it in the 70s and, and the 80s before the industry got entirely professional and you know, some of the stuff I see uh, created for community content is at least as professional as what's being uh, published by uh, the actual um, uh, publishers. And I think we mostly entirely have Wizards of the Coast to thank for what's, I think, a totally revolutionary way in how uh, things are being published um, because they came out with D&D Classics kind of during the interim between 4E and 5E. Uh, which was all of their PDFs of old products. Uh, and then that translated into uh, DMs Guild in 2016, um, which now they suddenly said, hey, any of you can produce content in our worlds too, too as PDFs. And 
you know, it was originally D&D, Forgotten Realms, and has slowly expanded into to other settings. And since then, there have been dozens of other publishers who have created community content of their own. And this year, one of the things that really surprised me was I uh, saw some individual creators because individual creators have really been the heart of most of the community content say, hey, we're forming a little company and we want to publish community content for DMs Guild and for um, Miskatonic Repository. I think it's called the Call of Cthulhu one. And that was kind of a first that we now have publishers appearing that are there just to create community content, not to take anything away from the individuals since so many of them are you know, just as professional as anything else. And I think possibly the only reason they don't have a publishing name is just because it all goes out through DMs Guild or whatever. But, you know, what we saw in the 70s, which were all of these kind of individuals starting up their own companies to publish content for D&D originally and variations of and such, it's the same thing as the community content in, in the 10s and 20s, except there's more of it. It's more professional. It's you know, looks nicer, it's better written, uh, and it's more available. It's, uh, I really think the future of uh, game design, if you're not a medium-sized publisher yourself. And so we've covered a lot of turf <laughs> over this last year. And before we get your predictions on the uh, upcoming year, uh, tell us what have you been up to and what's in the future for you? Yeah, so uh, two years ago, just before the pandemic, uh, I made some major life changes. I, I moved to Hawaii and I quit my full-time job so that I could spend more time writing. Um, some of that goes to technical writing because I still need to pay the bills, but two or three days a week now I try and sit down and work on role-playing projects. Um, I wrote a uh, supplement for uh, Chiasium's RuneQuest last year, this year, this year, um, on Elves, which has been a long interest. Uh, but the vast majority of my time has gone to Designers and Dragons. Uh, as you said, there were uh, four books that came out some years ago. Uh, my original volumes on the 70s, 80s, 90s, and uh, Adats. Uh, and I'm now working on three new books. <laughs> yeah. One of them is The Tens, which is the most requested uh, book since the others came out. People pretty much wanted to see it on January 1st, 2020, I think. Uh, I'm giving it a little more time to breathe because I kind of need to see what companies, you know, that were just emerging in the last few years were successful and what weren't. Um, for example, Osprey uh, got into role-playing publishing with their first uh, book published like on December 24th, 2019 or something, somewhere around there. And so that's a company that if I wrote it on January, released it on January 1st, 2020, I wouldn't have been able to say anything about Um I've got about uh, a little more than a third of that book now. Uh, but I'm also working on two books of lost histories, which uh, I'm going back to 70s, 80s, 90s, and odd odds. And I'm writing about a bunch of the companies that I didn't write about the first time. So, for example, the one in front of me uh, at this very moment is Timeline Limited, who did the Morrow Project in, the, uh, in 1980, kind of the first military role-playing game, uh, second-ish post-apocalyptic game after Gamma World and also a much more serious take than Gamma World. Uh, someone that was included in about a page in the original. And so uh, it will be out to a full article. And there's just a lot of other ones. Britannia Games, I mentioned who's doing Chivalry and Sorcery. There another one in there. Um, many, many others. A lot of them 
people that I found pretty important and just got missed the first time. Um, so that's one big project. Uh, my hope is that uh, maybe I'll have those three books ready to go in 2023. Um, probably a new Kickstarter for a three book series. Uh, the other thing that I'm working on are what I call my TSR codices. Um, when D&D Classics first appeared, um, uh, Steve White approached me and at DriveThruRPG approached me and said, hey, we got the secret project we're going to do. We're going to be making all of the PDFs available for uh, the entire D&D catalog going back to 1974, 1971, really. I think they have chain mail there now. Uh, we'd like you to write histories for them. Um, uh, one other person was doing it at the time to uh, Kevin Culp. And so we kind of divided up the world and I wrote all the classic stuff and he wrote all the newer stuff. Um, but uh, when I uh, started that work with drive through uh, RPG, uh, I worked really hard to make sure I retained rights to all of my histories. And it, it was work to figure out how, you know, we could compromise to get everything everyone wanted. drive through RPG was great. Uh, and they were willing to do it while they were right in the middle of this big initiative to start getting all these books digitized. Um, they were willing to let me hold on to the rights to my history. So I've started to compile those into books. And I originally thought, hey, nice four book series. That'll be fun. You know, I'll need to fill in the gaps. But uh, for the stuff that uh, Kevin did originally, um, I, I found out that I'd actually run about a million words just uh, in the content that I'd written uh, over the years. Yeah. And so what I'm actually working on right now is a four book series that uh, covers original D&D, AD&D first edition, basic D&D, and kind of the uh, last little bit of basic D&D, which was published as Mistara in uh, AD&D second edition. And so that'll give me kind of a uh, everything up to 1989. That's mostly my stop point, but then there was a little basic D&D that went over into 1993 or so. So that's actually going to be a four book series. Uh, I finished the first two. Uh, so I have two books on everything OD&D and AD&D first edition. And in the new year, I'm going to start on basic D&D. And some of that is, um, you know, revising, editing, uh, normalizing uh, all of the work that I'd done already. Some of it's filling in gaps. A lot of it depends on when I wrote it. First ones I wrote were shorter, later ones I wrote were longer, and I'm kind of settling on the longer one. So um that's uh, an exciting uh, four book series that I'm hoping to release in 2024, which will be the 50th anniversary of D&D. And so talking about its origins, I think will be interesting. Um, and people have seemed to like the histories over the years, which will remain available in their original form, of course, at uh, DM's Guild. Um, I just finished a book on the elves, the Aldriami for RuneQuest. Um, actually, I finished it, I sent it off and I've got comments, so I, I need to revise it a little bit. Uh, and I have a new secret project for next year, which will be a uh, specific uh, history for a company that's asked me to, to put together for them. So um, we need to finalize the contract, but I, I think we have it and I just need to get off my butt, make the final changes and send it to them. So those are kind of my mm, eight books I'm working on right now. No shortage of work. You're a busy person. So we very much appreciate you spending some time with us and sharing your knowledge. And uh, like I've said before, your lens on the overall history of tabletop role-playing games and then putting it into context of what we're seeing year to year is, uh, I think, invaluable. 
And then speaking of which, any kind of uh, knee-jerk predictions for 2021? Nobody likes to predict things because, you know, usually half of it doesn't come true, if not more. But any kind of trends that you see happening? Something that's uh, become pretty obvious to me, and this is a really boring answer, is that a lot of the trends that we see continue from year to year. And so I think a lot of what we've seen um, thus far, we're going to see that into next year. Uh, I've seen this rise of um, the use of role-playing games as content year by year, um, you know, going back at least to the middle of the 2010s. And so I think we're going to see more of that. I think we're going to see at least a couple more games get either licensed or made into uh, TV shows or uh, movies. Um, I think it's going to start going beyond the big ones, you know, Warhammer, D&D, World of Darkness. We've kind of seen those. Um, I think we're going to see something licensed for someone else. I mean, RuneQuest Glorantha TV show, that would be pretty cool. Um, You know, Traveler, actual successful movie or TV show, that would be pretty neat. I think those are the types of, you know, things just barely off of the top tier, um, you know, Pathfinder that we might see a license for at least. And, you know, that's what the hope of it. So I think we're going to see more of that. We might see more uh, mainstream streaming like the D&D Live that was on Peacock. Um, Within the industry, I think we're going to see a normalization of conventions. I think by the time we get to this next year's convention season, Hopefully, people are going to feel a little more about getting, feel a little better about getting out into the world. I don't know. It seems like every year, every time people start to feel better, we have a, a new variant which sets us back. Um, and um, I think, unfortunately, we're going to see at least one major company go out of business because of the shipping problems. Wow. And what about uh, for indie designers who like do watch the our channel here? As far as like, is itch going to continue to grow or is it always going to remain like a niche is a uh, drive through RPG? Like, I mean, speaking of like logistics problems, print on demand and all that kind of stuff, I wonder how it's going to affect them. And there's so many facets to all of this. Any kind of advice for indie designers? Um, print on demand, I can tell you in part how it's been affected by, by the pandemic, which it is, has been slowed. I mean, I'm in Hawaii, but... <laughs> My shipping is horrible, but I've seen uh, print on demand take two to three months to get to me at this point. I suspect on the the mainland, people are saying a month would be my guess, a month and a half. And so it's been delayed. Um, Indie designers, itch. Itch, I've I've had a hard time really assessing. It is clearly a huge creative uh, wellspring. I mean, there's just, it's amazing to go in and see how much is being done there, how much is new and not being seen, but I'm not really seeing it in the wider world. Um, So itch, great test bed, great place to test ideas. If you need one to get it out further, I think there needs to be a change in itch for that to happen. And there might be, I mean, they, they might want to figure out how to push it further. Drive-through RPG looks to me like it still remains the place to go for for digital content if you really want it at a large scale, and not necessarily if you want comments if you're still working on revising it. So I think maybe you might say that itch and uh, uh, drive-through might not actually have the same goals and the same uses that 
the one might be much better as a creative community and the other might be much better as a publishing community. And then um, sadly, as of every year, we lose a lot of great uh, talent and people that have contributed to the industry. And maybe you can just comment uh, on a few of those folks. And then I think, you know, I'll put together maybe a bit of a, a, a in memoriam afterwards, but uh, maybe just talk about some of the great minds that we've lost. Yeah, Steve Perrin was the one that really touched me because I knew him personally, not well, but he's someone that, you know, I ran into occasionally at Dundercon, which was a convention that he was one of the founders of back in the, must have been the 70s, um, and it remains one of the biggest and most influential in the California Bay Area where I used to live. Um, he created RuneQuest with friends, but in fact, if you look at the original cover, it says by Steve Perrin and friends. Uh, that means he created the basic role-playing system. Um, that means that he created the system that was used to, uh, uh, as the foundation of Call of Cthulhu, um, you know, the most successful horror role-playing game for at least a decade before World of Darkness came out and pretty much the game that made Lovecraft, Lovecraftian horror a major subgenre in the role-playing industry. Uh, it means that uh, he also was the author of Worlds of Wonder, which was kind of the um, system that took uh, basic role-playing and made it into a uh, house system for Chaosium and included Superworld. Superworld in turn was the game that Jar Jar Martin ran uh, when he was uh, running his uh, superhero role-playing game that eventually became the Wild Card series, which is, I, the series must be in its thirties in books right now. Uh, and of course, George R. R. Martin has become a mildly well-known household name as well. Uh, I purposely under, under speak that. Um, so Steve Perrin's influence wasn't just on the role-playing industry, but on the miter, wider media industry. Uh, he also, as I mentioned earlier, Swedish role-playing is based on basic role-playing. So you can say Steve Perrin pretty much created the entire Swedish role-playing industry of which Freelingen is now one of the biggest role-playing companies in the world and themselves very influential. So I, it, it's Steve Perrin, I would definitely put in my 10 most influential people in the role-playing industry. And uh, he was unassuming. Um, he, I don't think ever really took up that, uh, pedestal that he was well-deserving of as one of the real uh, founders and creators of the industry. Um, uh, that was Steve Perrin. Uh, Richard Hallowell is someone that I did not know very well because he was the original designer of Warhammer Fantasy Bell, and I've never really been a miniatures person. Uh, but, you know, he designed Warhammer Fantasy Battle he had some co-designers. He did the original design and then they took it in-house and did more work. Uh, and then uh, he was one of the co-designers for Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, which came out a few years later. And so he was basically not only one of the people that made this hugely successful, you know, Goliath that is Games Workshop, that is one of the, you know, few people that has ever really competed with, you know, Dungeons and Dragons, whether it be a TSR or Wizards of the Coast, and that still pretty much controls the miniature fantasy industry. But he also was one of the uh, creators of this darker fantasy that, you know, emerged in the eighties. I think Warhammer fantasy Roleplay was 86. Um, and uh, kind of took over the whole industry for a while. 
you look through the 80s and the 90s and everyone was doing these darker fantasies, often replacing these token influenced uh, uh, fantasies. And that all, all, all came from Richard. And the uh, third, third person that we very sadly lost that I thought of was of particular influence in the industry was Terry Ampther. So Terry was one of the founders of ICE. Uh, and so one of the uh, creators of Rollmaster, um, he was the one that really uh, turned their original Iron Wind setting uh, into an entire world. And that was Shadow World. And it was kind of fantasy, kind of science fantasy. It had a fairly unique place uh, in the industry. But where I thought Terry was particularly influential and important was in the 90s, he came out to uh, White Wolf Magazine in an article as a you know gay gamer and game designer. And that was in a time that was not necessarily safe to do at any level as a designer or you know just as a person in society. And so he was, you know, not just brave, but I think he really, you know, encouraged and offered a, a lot of younger uh, LGBTQ people to say, hey, it's okay to be a gay gamer and you know, you'll be accepted just like everyone else. Uh, he was one of the first people to have a gay culture in, in his game, which was Shadow World. And so he's someone that's not probably as well known as uh, uh, Steve Perrin or, or Richard Hallowell, but I think his, his influence in bringing diversity and understanding into the industry might be just as important. Well, Shannon, uh, thank you for sharing your knowledge. And uh, as we uh, say goodbye, we'll uh, play off some of the others that uh, we've lost this year. And uh, thank you for your time. And, uh, and we'll see you next year. Thank you very much. Look forward to talking to you again. Thank you for having me.